Uh, as Rod was saying, I work for Ausveg and I am uh, one of two uh, vegetable and biosecurity officers, uh, along with my colleague Callum Fletcher, who some of you may have met today. And we run the Vegetable and Potato Biosecurity Program, which is co-managed between Ausveg and uh, Plant uh, Plant Health Australia. So I'm up here today as a representative for the vegetable and potato industries on the Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests. So in a lot of ways, I am an end user of any R&D that is conducted on uh, incursion response. But I'm also here on behalf of the uh, growers who are the beneficiaries of any R&D that is conducted also. So uh, there has been a lot of uh, discussion at this meeting about psyllids and uh, Libribacter as well. So um, it's probably fitting that um, my talk I'm going to be focusing on the potato industry. Now, the potato industry is worth in Australia about $480 million and, um, per year, and we represent at Ausveg around 2,000 potato growers. And if you look on the industry biosecurity plan for potatoes, it lists our top eight uh, top priority pest threats, and there's eight of them. Um, and the zebra chick complex, which is the tomato potato silage, and also Libribacter, uh, is, um, has been found to have an establishment potential of high, a spread potential of high, an economic impact of extreme, and an overall risk rating of extreme. So in fact, it is the... Um, the only uh, priority pest listed in the potato IBP, which is characterised as extreme. So obviously quite a um, high priority for the potato industry. If the zebra chip complex were to find its way over here, we have uh, an environment that would be quite hospitable to it, the nice climate, uh, and also quite a wide host range. We have about 20 uh, host commodities here. Um, on which um, it could potentially um, use as hosts. And that's also not to mention some of the non-host uh, commodities um, and weed species and plant species in which it could incubate. And you hear a little bit more about that uh, from, from Jessica V, who's speaking after me. There's also potential for the zebra chip complex to arrive um, either um, through transit on people's clothing, uh, but also on wind currents, and that's been shown by the, um, the modelling work that's been conducted by the Alan Yen and Carla Finlay Research Group. Potential costs to industry from um, the uh, arrival of such a high priority and damaging pests can be quite extreme. And they range from um, not only costs of eradication uh, or costs of containment, um, so there's an economic cost there uh, for farmers, but also for the industry as a whole, but there are social consequences too. So some of you might have seen the landmine episode that viewed a couple of weeks ago that featured the Robsons, um, the Robson property, where the Panama TR4 was found and they're currently uh, under containment or quarantine. And uh, it was um, fairly evident watching uh, that episode of landmine, the uh, social impact that um, has been had on that family. They're feeling isolated from the rest of the industry. And certainly, uh, I, uh, I noted during the cucumber green model mosaic um, virus incursion a couple of years ago that growers who were quarantined with CGMMV also felt themselves quite isolated from the rest of the industry and um, there was certainly a feeling of a lot of hopelessness there. So any R&D that is um, 
focused on preparedness um, for incursion response and can lead to more effective incursion response, which would lead to a limited time that growers um, must be in quarantine. Um, and effective control of um, any emergency plant pest is a good thing for our industry. We also face possibilities of trade barriers, um, both domestic and international. And also, um, if the uh, priority pest cannot be eradicated, then we face increased management costs over a course of time, which can be quite substantial for industry. And that's been shown by the, um, the experience in New Zealand and uh, their experiences in managing uh, the zebra trip complex since 2006. So preparedness R&D in terms of incursion response rather than reactive R&D is a much more preferred option for the industry and they can take the form of, for instance, con contingency plans or risk-based approaches looking at more effective um, and accurate diagnostics. And Rod made a very good point earlier about the diversity of psyllids that we have in the, in the country here. So accurate diagnostics are absolutely essential, especially when it comes to um, fast decision-making when you're um, sitting on, on the um, consultative committee for emergency plant pests. At the moment, um, just as an example, the vegetable industry is looking at potentially doing some R&D into um, Lyriomyzer sativi, which is a vegetable leaf miner. It's found in uh, Cape York Peninsula at the moment, um, and we'll, um, we're very keen to um, conduct some R&D looking at um, how quickly that could spread from Cape York Peninsula and what control options are out there, as well as diagnostics for that pest. So of course there's already been a fair amount of um, R&D that has been conducted um, in regards to preparedness for incursion response. Plant Health Australia um, have uh, developed a, a contingency plan for brown marmorated stink bug. They've been doing a fair amount of work on bee health. They've been updating the industry biosecurity plans, which are very, very relevant, particularly as in, uh, for industry representatives working in the space and maintaining the emergency plant pest response deed. And of course there's been a fair amount of research conducted by the PBCRC. And I've put up here a few examples. Of course, this doesn't include them all. So with that, um, that's just an introduction just to put in context um, the industry side of things. Um, and, uh, and I'll hand over to the next speaker. Thank you, Jessica, for introducing the topic. Um, this is um, basically a report on a three-year research project that we just recently finished. Um, I would like to acknowledge my co-authors, um, the people from Plant and Food Research at the different locations, but also Carla Finlay, Kevin Powell, Isabel Falanguela, and Ellen Yen, uh, because they were involved as the Australian part of this project. So what is the problem? I think after all those psyllid presentations, you should know by now that the tomato potato psyllid is a problem, that it factors the bacterium, Candidatus liberibacter solanaciarum, and that this, um, that this pathogen is the causal, uh, the putative causal agent of zebra chip disease in potato. You know that? Which is some things you can't repeat often enough, eh? Um, so zebra chip disease, I've got the picture there, there you see the darkened chips, and the process industry doesn't like that. It's too dark to make crisps or potato chips. However, this complex not only um, attacks potato, it also attacks all the solanaceous crops like your tomato, your capsicums, your tamarillos, eggplant. 
About 10 years ago, we found the first solid in New Zealand, um, close to Auckland. And only two years after that is when a new to science pathogen was found in a capsicum crop close to Auckland as well. And they, um, we found out that it was the Candidatus Liberibactus solanus yarum. And in that same year, just a little bit later, we found the first zebra chip disease in potatoes in the Auckland region as well. After that, the spread over the whole of New Zealand has gone really rapidly and basically the psyllid is everywhere uh, in all the growing regions in New Zealand. I think that potato and tamarillo are probably the worst affected crops, um, yield and quality-wise. So potatoes, you've got your zebra chip, you're darkening off the chips. Our process industry doesn't like that, but there's also a quality issue there as well and a, and a yield, yield reduction. For the tamarillo growers, it's, it's a very different story. When a tree is infected with Liberibacter, it will actually kill the whole tree. So those growers have to start replanting tamarillo trees and they will lose quite a bit of their production for a few years. For the tomato and the capsicum growers, it's a bit different. They had really great IPM systems in um, the glasshouse tomato and capsicum industry. And because of the psyllid incursion, they lost the IPM system. So they're now spraying, which cost them, of course, uh, of course a lot more and has had um, an effect on their, um, on their products, really. So discussions to start this project probably started about four years ago. And uh, we had a discussion with, this, with the CRC and um, the Australian group and, uh, and some from New Zealand. And it was all about where are the knowledge gaps? If that psyllid comes to, New, uh, to Australia and we have an IPM system in Australia in potatoes, where are the knowledge gaps that need to be addressed in order to keep that IPM system or to further inform or develop that IPM system? And one of the gaps that was identified had to do with where do the psyllids go when the crop is gone? Because some growers think that magically when the crop is there, all of a sudden these psyllids appear, but that's not the case. These insects, they go somewhere. So that's how we decided that we would look into the role of these alternative, um, I'll come back to that later, alternative host plants in the life cycle of, uh, or the ecology of the psyllid and the Liberibacter. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of discuss four areas that we looked at in this project. Um, the project itself was much bigger than that, but I think those four will actually give you a really good view on, um, on the problem and of the knowledge that we, what we generated. Um, so we conducted host plant surveys in the Hawke's Bay uh, in the North Island and in Canterbury in the South Island, indicated by those red dots on the map, uh, around potato crops and tomato crops, so outdoor tomato crops. And what we found was that um, the host plants of the psyllids and of the Liberibacter are not just restricted to crop species, but there's also weeds or annual and perennial weeds involved in there. We also find that all life stages of the psyllid were present on these especially perennial host plants throughout the year. Even in areas where we have frosts and snow, the psyllids are still there. So although they're not on your potatoes, 
they're still on those uh, perennial host plants. So like I said in my title, I'm talking about alternative host plants, but actually they're just hosts, just like the potato and the tomato, those weeds um, or perennial shrubs, they're just hosts for the psyllid, and they're happy on those hosts as well. When we notice that we find the psyllid in quite large numbers or um, quite frequently on certain host plant species, uh, sorry, on certain plant species, we would take samples of those plants and we would test them for Liberibacter. And what we found in the Hawke's Bay in the North Island was that Jerusalem cherry and thorn apple tested positive for uh, CLSO. Uh, so that is a natural infection. So um, also I should, um, I should uh, stress that when we tested those plants, that was when the, there was no crop in the ground. So that was, uh, it was an autumn situation. There was no crops around and these plants were just sources of CLSO. And they might actually be still there, you know, in spring when the potato crops are emerging. The second aspect we looked at is the spatial temporal dynamics of, um, of the psyllid throughout the year. So we did two years of continuous weekly sticky trapping um, of, the, of the psyllid. What we did was we used um, transects of yellow sticky traps, as you can see on the, on the picture in the middle, uh, about 50 meters into the crop. We would run these transects into a potato crop or a tomato crop, but also in other non-crop hosts, um, carrots, uh, some spinach. But, um, we had some broccoli crops as well. And we had these situations with and without having a weedy host plant there. And in most cases, that was, um, that was African box thorn, a lyceum species, and the psyllids are we find that the psyllids are on there the year round. So we had situations with potatoes and the African boxthorn, or only carrots and the African boxthorn, or we had potatoes without the African boxthorn. So we had all kinds of, um, of situations where we could deduct what was actually influencing you know, the uh, spatial temporal dynamics of uh, the psyllid. And what we found was that there was a low background of um, uh, a low background population of the psyllid flying around in the environment. We could trap psyllids in situations where we had no hosts, uh, whether they're crops or weeds present. What we also found was that when African boxthorn was present close to a potato or tomato crop, that we had increased activity nearby of that um, um, African boxthorn, um, that we could detect the psyllids earlier in the potato crop or in the tomato crop, and that very often you could see an edge effect going from that African boxthorn into, into the crop as well. So the, the symptoms would start at the, at, uh, closer to the boxthorn and then move into the crop. And once those psyllids are in the crop, they, um, they, they multiplied quite well, um, but they didn't seem to disperse very far. At the end of the season, when the, when the growers are desiccating their crop by applying a herbicide, so they're killing off the stalks and the leaves of the crop, um, we see a huge increase in um, adult flight activity. There's, uh, there's a lot. We had a situation where we had 1,500 psyllids on a trap in a week. Um, 
and, and that, that's a lot to count as well. Um, I didn't have to do it. <laughs> I made somebody else do it, that was even worse. Um, um, and that peak could last for actually quite a few weeks. So it's not just one week of a peak, but very often you had really high silic numbers for quite a long time. And it might be that the silics are just looking for other feeding and oviposition substrates because you know the crops desiccated and they can't feed anymore. A third aspect we looked at was the feeding of the of the silic on um, on host plants. Are there differences whether they feed on a, on a crop host or on a well on an alternative host? And we use the um, electrical penetration graph for that, EPG technology, where you hook uh, an insect onto an electrical wire. So we've got that there. Uh, we put them on the plant, and when they start feeling you get a feeding, you get electrical currents. And um, from the different waveforms, you can deduct whether they're um, probing, feeding in the xylem, feeding in the phloem, all of that. And what we, what they, um, so Kevin Powell and um, Isabel uh, came over to uh, Mount Albert, uh, Auckland, and worked in our lab together with my colleague Mano. And what they found was that the host species or the host plant species alone was not decisive in determining um, the number and duration of phloem ingestion and uh, salivation events. And I must say that. Um, we wanted to do this or more host plants than just the two that I mentioned here, but it was really hard to get the scientists, the plants, the insects, and uh, all in one place at the same time being all ready. So unfortunately, we could only do this on tomato and boxthorn, African boxthorn. What they did find was that the, the, the allozoa infection status of the psyllid um, determined the feeding behavior. So what they noticed was that when the psyllid was positive, so with uh, Liberia vector, it tended to salivate more. And when it was um, negative, it tended to ingest more phloem than uh, their positive counterparts. It could be a bit of um, manipulation by the pathogen. Uh, we see that more often with insect vectors, that the, the pathogen can actually manipulate the insect behavior. So maybe some of that is going on here as well. The last um, aspect I would like to discuss with you is um, development and fecundity of TPP on different host plants. Uh, this was also the last experiment that we ran. Uh, it was also uh, the most horrible experiment that we ran because everything that could go wrong went wrong. I don't know if you can read that actually in there, but not necessarily have to be able to read that. This table shows um, some um, parameters that we calculated here. Uh, days till the first egg laid, uh, the number of uh, eggs that a female lays per day she's alive, um, the development time overall on that plant species. And then across from left to right, um, it's on the left is where TPP performed best on that host plant. And then on the right-hand side is where TPP uh, performed worst. And what I would like you to get from this table is that on the left-hand side, it says a lot of the poroporo, so that's a kangaroo apple for the Australian people here. Um, it says quite a bit of potato as well. And then on the right-hand side, where the psyllid didn't do so well, there's a lot of tomato mentioned. 
which was quite unexpected for me because they do quite well on in our colonies on tomatoes. So. Um, when, it's, um, when the text is in bold, it means that it's significantly different from the other plants mentioned in that same row. Well, sorry for that um, parameter that we measured. Um, so this indicates that the psyllids do actually quite well on those uh, non-crop host plants, basically as well as they do on the, on the crops. So how is New Zealand using this information? Because, you know, they've been dealing with the psyllid now for 10 years, basically, um, in, depending on the area where you're in. Um, for me, what I've seen is that there is an increased awareness, uh, especially of the people that scout the, uh, the crops and um, help the growers develop their uh, spray programs, um, that there are non-crop host plants and that the psyllid is there for the year round, really. Uh, also, you know, especially in the South Island, where people always thought that because of the frost or the snow, um, those psyllids might disappear. Well, they don't. They're, they're still there and they're happy. Um, I do, when I talk to the crop scouts, um, some of them are very happy and they show me these pictures of, you know, psyllids in July or August, for example, on the African bookstore, and they go like, they're really dear, and I was like, yeah, I know. Um, I've done that work myself for two years, thank you. Um, so I think that really increased the awareness, and I think that's a good thing as well for, um, um, you know, for the industry. To be able to help the growers deal with the situation, and then quite recently, there um, another thing has appeared, and that's Tamarixia triosae. So the Environmental Protection Agency in in New Zealand um, decided to improve the import of the ectoparasitoid Tamarixia triosae to control the tomato potato psyllids in um, in the different crops. And uh, before this was approved, I thought, let's rip out all those non-crop host plants and then hopefully the psyllid will disappear. But now that we, you know, we might get this parasitoid in and we do have a project to actually um, introduce that to um, the different regions in New Zealand. Um, I'm actually thinking that those perennial non-crop host plants are really good place to release the parasitoid, also depending on how mobile they are. But I think um, also for the survival of the parasitoid uh, in winter or in autumn when the crop is not there, um, you know, they still have their psyllids and at that same time they might actually lower the, um, the pressure of the psyllid, hopefully, um, as well. Conclusion, well, I think that those non-crop host plants are important in the ecology of the, um, the psyllid, but also in the ecology of the Liberibacter, as we have shown that there is some natural infection of weeds. This has implications for uh, the biosecurity preparedness plans for Australia. Um, for us, that's all past. Um, surveillance and monitoring, not just the techniques that you use, but also the locations. Where do you start your surveillance and your monitoring? Um, and then for New Zealand, and hopefully never for Australia, um, for pest and disease management. Um, this information is, um, is quite useful for that. Um, if you want to talk to me about all of this, um, come and catch me this week. Otherwise, uh, email to that horrible email address, but it's also in your uh, little booklet, so you can look it up there. And um, I think it's up to Gabrielle now, I don't know where she is, thank you, um, to continue this presentation. Thank you.
Hi there. So I'm going to give you a perspective that's more, um, I guess, as a chief plant health manager, we have a few different jobs, and one of those is incursion uh, responses, so mounting a rapid response, um, but also contributing to the decision-making around um, uh, a response, the type of planning that goes ahead within an emergency response. So what I'd like to do is highlight um, uh, some of the findings of Jess's research and some of the other research that's been going on through the CRC and how relevant it is um, to us as uh, chief plant health managers when we have to make decisions about emergency responses. So just uh, the words consultative committee have been mentioned a couple of times. I think Jess Lai mentioned it and Rod mentioned it. So just to give you a bit of an outline, one of our roles as the chief plant health officer is not only do we do the response planning and provide that, um, I guess, strategic direction and tactical advice to state control centres and local control centres in an emergency response, but we also uh, sit on a, a group called the Consultative Committee, which is a technical group that formulates advice for decision makers. So that's this group. So that advice then is provided to the National Management Group, which is the CEOs of all of the different government um, agencies responsible for biosecurity and the industry parties that are affected that are signed up to the emergency plant pest response deed. And it's the national management group that makes a decision based on the technical advice that the consultative committee has come up with. So the consultative committee uh, has to decide or has to make, make um, assess a number of different factors. One is they need to look at the impact of the pest or disease on uh, both production systems and the environment. So they need to have information about impact. But one of the key questions that they um, also need to look at is, is it technically feasible to eradicate? And uh, the consultative committee, to, in order to make that decision, um, is actually, actually a very hungry consumer of science. So much of the science that's being produced by the CRC potentially has application in this decision-making um, advice formulation process. And now I'd like, while I'd like to have a picture of a consultative committee deep at work thinking of these scientific questions. Uh, unfortunately, most of the work is done by telephone, so I've just got a picture of a telephone there instead. So the consultative committee needs to make these decisions quickly. They need to make them make sound decisions or formulate sound advice so the NMG can make a sound decision. It needs to be robust. It needs to withstand the test of time, so it could be repeatable under the same circumstances again. And um, it also needs to be transparent so we understand what the basis of that decision was. So it's not just a black box. Um, also, the consultative committee needs to deal with uncertainty and incomplete information. So one of the things that we do is that we, when we um, look at whether something's technically feasible to eradicate or not, we have to consider a large range of factors. There's actually 16 factors that are laid out. And of those 16, 14 really are scientific, uh, need science to underpin them. Sometimes we don't have that science, sometimes there are gaps there. Um, we also need to, not only do we need to have that scientific knowledge and information, but we actually need evidence as well. So there needs to be data and analysis. So we need the tools to be able to do that analysis and, and uh, uh, I guess, interpret the data very quickly. Um, 
And so all that requires a lot of scientific activity. And when you're dealing with many different incursions and, or possible pests to consider, we need to be able to do it very quickly and effectively. So in terms of just what I'd like to do is just run through these criteria that we have very quickly um, and just outline some of the R&D that really goes into those. So the first one is looking at the pathway. So how did the pest arrive? And just can we trace it as well? And I'd just like to highlight that traceability to me is one of our big gaps that we still haven't really solved in plant um, production systems. So we don't have terrific traceability systems within the country. Um, and we don't have some really good systems there to actually, um, I guess, uh, interpret the data or gather the data and quickly analyse it. We've heard a lot about diagnosis over the last few days, so we have to be able to diagnose the pest. We need to be able to diagnose the pest accurately, quickly, and sometimes we need to do a lot of tests. And so this, a lot of the CRC work has been extremely valuable in that. We need to be able to delimit the pest, so we need to know where it is and where it's not. And you just heard uh, from Jessica's work that um, although her focus was integrated pest management, a good understanding of the host range is critical, and often we don't really know at the outset what the host range is. So the work that Jess has done has given us a much firmer basis. In the event we do have an incursion of this pest um, complex, we'll be able to, uh, I guess, make much better predictions about um, the actual extent of the pest. Um, so we also need to contain the pest uh, so while the decisions are being made. And again, that needs a good understanding of the host range, the dispersal characteristics, uh, just what the vectors are um, and whether we can actually uh, manage those at all. We need to have an idea about what the re-entry probability. If we've got a very porous border and the pest is likely to come in again and again, well, that's another factor we need to take into account before we invest a huge effort into an eradication program. Uh, it's very difficult to do it once, let alone continue to do it repeatedly. And then dispersal, which I've mentioned as being related to delimitation and containment. Jess's work has shown how, how the psyllid moves and what may constrict it, what may maintain population uh, over a longer period of time. So there's a range of other factors that uh, largely relate to control. So there's the efficacy of control measures. Do we have measures available? Can we do R&D during the course of a response quickly uh, and uh, to generate the results we need? Can we destroy or remove um, the pest and the host plants effectively? We need to think about what the removal rate is of the pest. Can we remove the pest, uh, the host plants, uh, the vectors um, quickly enough? And that requires an understanding of the population dynamics of the pest. And you'll see that from Jess's research in which is largely IPM related, there's some really valuable uh, insights there into the population dynamics. Uh, then there's your ability to detect the pest at very low levels. So we need to know where the front of the pest is and then not only that, when we're actually mopping up in the event that we've actually managed to get on top of the pest, we need to be able to prove that we've eradicated it. So again, that requires surveillance activity at very, very low levels. 
So a lot of the surveillance activity, surveillance research that we've heard about potentially has applications at this end of the incursion response as well as at that very early outset uh, when we're trying to get in and have an early detection when the pest is at low, pest, at low levels at the beginning of an incursion. And again, I think um, our ability to detect pests at low levels and that proof of freedom end, I think again, they are areas of, of gap perhaps, areas where we could perhaps apply a bit more R&D to make our decision-making processes a little bit more robust. And then finally, we've got a couple of um, social uh, aspects. One of them is we need to make sure that the methods that we use, we need to consider in our decision, are the methods going to be acceptable? Um, are they going to be publicly acceptable to people? And um, a lot of the social R&D that we uh, that the CRC has done has given us insights into this. Um, and then also we need to be able to undertake community consultation. The two aspects that are largely not scientific are legislation. Are there any legislative impediments? And then resources. Do we actually have resources uh, available to mount a response? So poor old consultative committee, they have to consider all these factors and no wonder they're crying out at times going, it's so complex, it's really hard, you know, I need more information. And uh, sometimes there's a little bit of criticism at the length of time it takes to make a decision, but it's really important that we understand all these elements that have to be considered in the decision and we try and integrate the science that we're producing uh, so that it can be, um, I guess, consumed and made sense of in an emergency response situation. So just in order to answer this question to eradicate or not to eradicate, just want to reiterate that we've got, we need, we, we absolutely need sound science uh, for decision making. We do have a few gaps. So tracing, detection at low levels, proof of freedom, and public acceptability of some of our methods are areas where I think there's a fair bit of scope to learn more. Um, we do have to be able to deal with uncertainty and incomplete information. And we do need to make decisions quick, quickly and efficiently based on many factors. Um, and I think that there's a great project, Rebecca Laws and Susie Perry are hopefully helping um, do some research on this very question itself. We need to be able to make transparent, robust, defensible decisions. And we need to also learn from our decision-making process. How do we get better at it, more efficient at it? How do we preemptively determine whether uh, a particular disease or pest is likely to be eradicable or not so we can quickly move on to management um, rather than deliberating over something that is perhaps um, an unwinnable uh, eradication program? So just finally, I just want to also reiterate that um, while I represent Victoria, you know, really at, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, agriculture is at the heart of many of our regional communities. Um, they depend upon uh, agriculture in many different ways. It's not just uh, only the producer, so we need to also keep that in mind when we're making these decisions so that we, we end up feeling confident that we've made the right decision and our deci decisions do stand the test of time. And that's it from me. Jess? Thanks, Jess and Gabrielle.
So I've been asked just to end and, and really tie a bow on, uh, on this panel session. So given the extreme rating of the zebra chip complex for the potato industry, the work being done by um, Jess and her group is of very, very high relevance uh, to industry. Now, in terms of further benefits from um, R&D work in, in the space of um, incursion management, there's an obvious benefit in terms of maintaining markets, market maintenance, but also access to new markets. So at the moment, um, in terms of uh, um, the common hosts for the zebra chip complex, we have at Capscom Export at the moment about 1.5 million as of last year, potatoes at 2.3, uh, and tomatoes are a fair bit higher at about 19 million. So the, um, the numbers for Capscom and potatoes are not terribly high. However, the, um, the increasing uh, exports of these commodities is a major aim of the vegetable and potato industries going forward. So any R&D that allows us to keep uh, our country free of these pests that might potentially shut down uh, markets for us is of, of extreme importance. Uh, I, I spoke to you about, um, I mentioned the experience of the Robsons in Queensland and also experiences of growers in, um, in the Territory concerning CGMMB, whereby um, quite a few of them um, underwent a, a quarantine for around a year. And so uh, minimising quarantine uh, times and also minim minimising zones potentially um, to the level of a property through uh, accurate delimiting and accurate diagnostics of pests is, um, would be highly, highly beneficial to the industry and also would aid in um, circumventing that problem we have where growers are unwilling to put their hand up and, and report a potential exotic pest on their property um, if we can try and uh, minimise the impacts of, of an eradication response through uh, good informed decision-making and, um, and good R&D. Uh, and also, um, we, we will just end up with fewer pests to manage. So um, for the industry, that ends up being a huge cost saving and, and a good thing. And so while um, the major beneficiaries of R&D are generally the growers, agricultural industries, and government, um, and to a lesser extent, some industry representatives are the end users of, of such R&D, uh, there is a trend where uh, industry is being asked to take a greater responsibility in, in biosecurity uh, activities. So what you might find is, in the future, that um, industry might be uh, end users of such R&D also. So uh, I've got up here a table uh, which has been taken from the Cucumber Green Model Mosaic um, Virus National Management Plan, which was uh, endorsed finally this week by the working group, which is fantastic. And it, it outlines uh, responsibilities in the plan of uh, growers and peak industry bodies, uh, state and territory governments, and the Commonwealth government as well. I'm sorry, and it's a little bit hazy, so you can't see, but if you look under the grower responsibility column, it has uh, um, points uh, that specify growers have a responsibility to understand signs of, of the disease, in this case, CGMMV, which is no longer, uh, an, uh, it's, it's now endemic in some parts of Australia, but um, it's still a trade-sensitive pest. They have responsibilities to collect samples where appropriate and submit them and report um, any new detections and also to maintain um, adequate farm hygiene to try and manage the pests. So that's just an example of, um, of where some of the um, industry responsibilities lie. And industry does have a lot of um, strengths whereby they can contribute to this space. In terms of uh, monitoring, they're out in the crops a lot. 
um, and the, um, they have the ear to the ground. So the grapevine is a great way of um, finding out what's happening uh, within a region and hear about any potential pest detections. Um, we, we have a, a reasonably long corporate memory because the average age of our farmers is 55 to 60 years old. So we tend to have a lot of um, experience built up over time. And we have many industry experts that can be tapped into, such as industry development officers and agronomists um, with quite extensive industry networks. And also, of course, each uh, growing operation can provide a, a form of in-kind support through um, farm uh, hygiene um, and also undertaking uh, monitoring, um, and especially in the case of um, where it can tie, in, tie into research, uh, tie, uh, tap into research such as that conducted by Jess, um, where she has um, produced results that will indicate to us um, what plants um, growers need to be aware of that might harbour uh, insects such as TPP. And so, um, unless you're uh, Mike Ashton, uh, if you're in a CCEPP situation, often um, it can be quite a pressure cooker situation um, and because it is a crisis. Uh, and so any R&D that can add uh, confidence to your decisions in that space is, is a good thing and will lead to more informed and faster decision making, which will ultimately lead to um, better incursion response, more effective incursion response. Um, and I'd just like to finish with um, one uh, quote from a wise person who once said to me, when biosecurity is working, you never hear about it. So um, hopefully this will um, be something that we all aim for and achieve. Thank you. Just, just briefly, I think the panel sessions that we've been running are really good demonstrations about how the science does actually help decision makers, whether industry or government, actually make decisions. And I think it's also a very good demonstration of the New Zealand-Australia partnership because we're, Australia is fortunate to be able to use the experiences of New Zealand to actually plan for if this pest ever makes it to our shores. And to show that I actually do listen to you, Tony Clark, Tony often tells me that you need to um, understand the ecology of a pest and mainly these conversations have been in relation to Queensland fruit fly in order to manage and to know where to, uh, to do your surveillance, how to, to target the pest. And I think Jessica's work quite clearly demonstrated if we're just looking tomato and potato crops, we're not actually going to find the psyllids, particularly in winter. So we need to know if we're going to do an emergency response, we actually need to know how the pest behaves and where it's going to be found. So in the interest of time, I will allow for one or two quick questions if someone's got one. Thank you. Um, I had a question to Gabrielle. The, uh, uh, Gabrielle, uh, in an incursion situation where there is uh, the pressure cooker situation, do we have a, based on our, the experience of our animal colleagues or uh, case studies of the past or other jurisdictions, do we have a very clear list of where the political pressure is likely to be exerted in terms of exemptions or sort of go slower here or there? Do we, do we actually, you know, does the consultative committee canvas what is likely to be a political um, intervention which may impede your... Uh, efficacy and efficiency? Well, the consultative committee has a very, has a pretty tight remit and its, its remit is largely technical. So they, they, they have to think, they can't really think about the political implications or the financial implications uh, per se. So they need to provide um, essentially technical advice 
the p political considerations, um, if they need to be considered, are generally at that much higher CEO level. So it would be the secretaries of the various agencies and the CEOs of the industry um, parties that would need to take that in, into account. There's sort of a separation of, uh, you know, like they ha we have to have clean technical advice uh, that then goes up and then, you know, the, the powers that be consider the other factors that may be important as well. Obviously, when we're looking at risks, um, risk management, we do have to consider, you know, a broad range of risk, um, and that includes things like social, political factors. The political intervention risk sort of uh, was probably greater than the technical risk. You know, as we understand, foot and mouth in the UK and all the rest of it, you know, what, what things go wrong is when our beloved political masters who we love and admire get involved in sort of uh, in what you would want to achieve as a sort of technically based, evidence based, and this whammo comes across your bow. Well, I think we're fortunate in that we've got um, a number of agreements in place. So we've got the deeds, so the emergency plant pest response deed, and we've also got the IGAB, and I think um, they really help map out who has what responsibility and how things work in an emergency setting. And um, while, you know, political factors do come into play, I think largely we've managed, we managed to have a, a pretty well-defined process. Sally Troy may want to say something there, uh, but from a Commonwealth perspective, but, yeah. But it, we, we do have, uh, you know, a process that we use all the time. It's very, uh, we have a lot of practice at it. It goes, you know, things go through that channel up to NMG regularly. Um, we really have uh, what I would see as political interference, so. Also to Gabriel, Gabriel, those 16 points that you raised, that's the first time I've ever heard of them. And, you know, I've been working biosecurity for a while now. And we have a SVIDS document that gives us a standard thing. We've got a standard, we've got industry biosecurity preparedness plans. Should that list of 16, which is so critically important in incursions, be better known so that we start supplying as researchers formalised data? Well, that was part of the method in my madness today to <laughs> highlight those. Um, those 16 um, originally came from the NEBRA, the National Environmental Biosecurity Response Agreement, and we found that we were utilising them more and more, and now they're you know, part of the documentation that sits under Plant Plan and the EPPRD. So um, I think you know, the more we use them, the more we'll be able to test uh, you know, which ones of those 16 are, are the most important. Uh, at the moment, we've just really started uh, regularly kind of practising the discipline of, of looking at those and e examining them, but they haven't been around that long, so it's really only been a couple of years. So.